Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Troy, we have been waking up in Vegas consecutively for the past several weeks now, uh, whether it be literally in Vegas or just spiritually in Vegas. Either way, my pockets are empty and I have nothing left to bet. My God. <laughs> Thank God we're getting out of there, right? Oh my God. I Well, I am. I don't know about you, <laughs> but I, uh, I can't spend another day. I'm down to pennies. <laughs> well, we're going out with a bang. Are we though? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I think so. A, okay. a, a bang full of cockroaches and crossbows. A bang full of cockroaches and crossbows. Sounds tempting. What more could you? Right up for? my alley. I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe more of a budget. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that, you know. Yes. It's it's really interesting that we we made a point to choose um, two films you know, to cover that were Vegas based to celebrate our time in Vegas last weekend. And both of the films, I think suffer from like not really amping up the Vegas atmosphere as much as I would anticipate a film that is set in Vegas would. Uh, correct. Absolutely. And it's funny because both films at certain points offer like kind of a splash of Vegas imagery. And then very quickly they dissolve to taking you to an environment or a location, a setting that is completely void of Vegas uh, with, with the last film, it being the, the casino being so lackluster, you know, we talked about that in, in Leprechaun three, you're in a casino, but it feels like something you would, you could, <laughs> you would find in like, I don't know, any small town, that has the ability to throw something like that together. Like it looked very lackluster. And and now this film, it gives you a taste of Vegas. Then it quickly does the same thing. Yeah. I feel like the films, the two films probably had in common the, uh, a budget that just could not sustain filming an entire film in Vegas. So what they did is they, you know, they, they were able to get the actors together for a day, you know, throw a GoPro on a, on a taxi cab, put the actors in the taxi cab and drive up and down the strip a couple times. There you go. B roll footage, transition footage. We got it. We're done. Now let's go back to Michigan to finish filming the film because coincidentally <laughs> I did notice in the closing credits that this film was filmed in Michigan and it makes a lot of sense. Really? Oh my God. Yeah. I guess that does make sense because it's just an onslaught of alleyways and <laughs> like corridors. You really don't see a ton of the downtown. And when you do, you're right. It is, it is B-roll style footage. And coincidentally, both of these films are third entries into a trilogy. Um, and both of these films were also straight to video, straight to DVD options. So, yeah, so I guess we should probably tell the audience what film we're talking about if they haven't caught on or anything. We are discussing for today's episode to close out our two-week Vegas extravaganza, we are discussing the 
2011 film Hostel Part 3. Yes, because there's not really that many Vegas offerings defined within the genre, mm-hmm. within the you know within the horror. Uh, there's only so many, and <laughs> this is what we had to pick from. If we could have done a full month of it, we would. And you know, you know what's interesting, Roger? Watching this film, I totally, totally forgot who the director of this film was. And the director of this film is Mr. Scott Spiegel, who. We have covered one of his films before on this pep, uh, podcast, and it's one of my very favorite eighty slasher films. It's one of the more brutal slasher films that come out of the 80s, and it is one of the only slasher films that takes place in a grocery store, and I'm talking about 1988's Intruder. Oh, I loved Intruder. He, he, it's the same director. I would never fucking guess it, to be honest. I really liked Intruder, which was completely... Uh, set within one location and really made the very most of it, I would say. Whereas with this film, I think one of its weakest elements, and I think there are many, I'll be transparent, but I think one of the weakest elements of this film is the fact that the first two films in this series were built up around the grandiosity of the world that hostile, you know, the hostile... um, the, the, the countries that they were based within. We got a lot of culture, we got a lot of uh, views of like the cities, the neighborhoods, the towns where the hostel was based. And then that very much contrasted against what ended up being revealed to be the uh, the layers that they were taken to within these kind of warehouse factory structures that were so gritty, so grimy. And uh, the production value was just really top notch for both one and two. I really am a huge fan of Hostel 2. I know not everybody is, but I really think it is a very grand but a movie that takes full advantage of its budget. This film visually suffers quite a bit because after experiencing the first two films within the series, there's simply no comparison to the scale of, of what these characters are put through. Um, and the locations that they're taken to are significantly downgraded and far more lackluster. And that really shows, unfortunately, in this third film. Well, for me, one of the most uninteresting elements to this film, one of the weaker plot points to this film for me, is the whole idea that there are people like gambling while the victims are being tortured and murdered. I just think that takes away from the, oh, like the claustrophobic frightening atmospheric tension that the first two films gave us with their death scenes, where you literally have a victim that is, like you said, is in this small dungeon like room uh, confined to a chair with only them and their killer. It makes it very intimate, right? And and it makes it very uh, tension, tension filled. This film, you know, once you get the the victim in the chair and those curtains open up and it reveals almost like a, a, a cocktail lounge, where people are sitting around with, you know, gambling mechanisms in front of them to bet, you know, how how the victim is going to die, how many, you know, blows it's going to take for them to finally die, when when they're going to start begging for their life. I mean, I think it loses a lot of its impact. Oh, absolutely. That's actually one of my biggest notes, I would say, with this film and where it struggles is, while I would never say that Hostel is a perfect film, I will say that in the moments where the characters within the first two films 
and several times this happens over the course of both movies, wake up and find themselves in a scenario. It is intimate. It is uh, claustrophobic. And it's but normally, it's almost always placed between two individual characters. So it's very much a shared moment. They took a different approach with this. And I think it was, this was them trying to lean into the Vegas element more, um, in which they make it very much like a spectacle, a show for a, uh, for a plethora of viewers. But that tr- really just sucks away any fear factor that would exist here and it's all that's left is simply the gore and the violence which which really there is not that much so it does kind of leave me feeling like well overall like what was the goal here like what were you trying to do because it doesn't it just doesn't feel like it it in any way captures the raw brutality of the of the initial two films I, I would totally agree with that. I really would. And um, it, it also, like like you said, I feel like they shoehorned that part in because the film was set in Vegas. Uh, because it really, at the end, by the end of the film, it has really nothing to do with anything. It's, it's almost just abandoned. You know, the whole concept of there's people betting on, it's just kind of abandoned. It, so it really could have been omitted and, and it would have still been, I think, just as impactful as a film as it as it is, which let's be honest, it's really not that impactful. But having that element didn't add anything to it. And for me, it just, it took me out of it. Yeah. But with that said, I do want to say, I, I, I don't necessarily hate this film. I, I think that... You know, by the by, the third film, you know the 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 first the first hostel the first hostel was wildly successful. You know, um, considered one of the one of the best slasher films to come out of the, the the period, and really started ushered in the torture porn you know concept. It got glowing reviews. It kind of made Eli Roth a household name in in the horror community. And then we got Hostel Two, which, like, I can't. I like Hostel Two. I would be fine if I never watched it again, not because I think it's a horrible movie. I literally have never been more disturbed by a death scene in a film than I am by Heather Monterazzo's death scene in Hostel 2. For some reason, Roger, that scene really gets to me. It's when she's crying and hanging upside down and the snot's coming out of her nose and she's begging for her mom. It, It really... Yeah. affected me and i'm i'm like oh i don't know if i can put myself through that again with that said i i really like hostile too i like the direction they took it with it and you know this one kind of used that same sort of small twist that hostile 2 gave us at the end and, and injected it into this particular script and you know i i'm wondering you know why this even got made in the first place considering hostile 2 was pretty much a flop but I think they, you know, they, they still felt they maybe could have capitalized on the, the name, the success of the first one and uh, throw this out there for uh, a little bit of money because this didn't really have a huge budget. I think I read the budget was $6 million, which sounds like a lot, but really isn't. And it went direct to DVD, as we mentioned. So I think they just felt, felt like, what, what, what can we do with this? You know, we already had the first two films that took place in a foreign country. Well, let's bring it to the United States. So I feel like they, they kind of had no choice, but to do something different. And, and Vegas obviously is one of the more tourist cities in the United States. So, Hey, why not set it in Vegas? With that said, there was a lot of things that could have been better. Right. But again, I don't, I don't necessarily hate the film. I know 
I know it got a lot of negative reviews when it came out, but let's let's get into it. You shall we? Yes. Oh, by all means. And I do want to say when I first really quick, when I f- first started chatting with you, I, I made it clear I did not enjoy this movie. And I do want to just go into this review stating I, I really didn't enjoy this movie, but I didn't hate it either. I think the worst thing to say about it, though, and this is one thing you don't want to say about any film, is it left me feeling very indifferent and oftentimes very bored. And I think that's the biggest issue here for me is I just I don't care about this movie, but I'll be it's easy for me to talk about it. And you know what? Let's dive in. Uh, because I have plenty of comments and plenty of critiques. Uh, so, yeah, let's dive on in. Okay. Well, yeah. So, Hostel 3. Um, it opens with an American, obviously an American, named Travis. We find out his name's Travis, who becomes a, a kind of a key player throughout the film. He gets his key from the hotel room. It's room number nine. Uh, it's a very sinister-looking place. And he's, he's walking down these abandoned hallways. There's like, you know, hookers walking up and down the hallways wearing their nothing but negligees and stuff. And he goes into his room and it's preoccupied by the previous tenants who have not left yet. Victor and Anka. Anka, who is ironing in her bra and panties. These two Ukrainians. <laughs> oh, they're Ukrainians. They are Ukrainians. They're they're a hoot. They They, you know, she apologizes for them still being in the room. Right away, though, and I got to say, this is kind of the first instance of the film really subverting the audience's expectations, and it does it several times. And I got to say, that is one thing I will give major props to this film for is setting something up that we think is going to go one way based on what we know of the hostile world from the first two films and then taking it in a completely different direction because these characters, the Anka and Victor characters, when they come on screen, they are very sinister. Like the way the camera works around them and the music that's, that swells up when, when those two are on screen and then Travis's look of, you know, he's kind of hesitant to, to entertain these two because they are kind of creepy. And they have that heavy European Ukrainian accent, which we know the first two films, right? Who were the villains in the first two films? They were the Slovakians, the Eastern Europeans, and they have that European accent. So our expectation is that it's going to be Victor and Anka are going to drug this poor Travis and make him the first victim of the hostel. But that's not what happens. And I really appreciated that it like I said, it subverted my expectations. I don't know about you. Yeah, you know, I I, I, I do appreciate it because I got to say that Travis is bad hair and I wanted him to die right away. Um, <laughs> and then they, they end up make, twisting it where he is, in fact, the villain of the sequence, as we come to find out. And that was a, a strong choice. However, I will say that one issue I have with this movie is a lot of its decisions and choices do not feel original or unique. They feel much very as though very much as though they're following in the footsteps the blueprint of the hostels that came before. Because the way that hostel films tend to be set up is like the mystery of, oh, someone goes missing. Where did they go? Well, we're going to go to the last person they talked to, and then we're advised to go here and blah, 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 and twist and turns and all this. And 
if you remember Hostel 2, for example, Bijou Phillips, at one point, she, she meets a guy who they very much frame him, film him in a way where you think that he's going to be the one abducting her. Well, then he turns out to be one of the victims as well. This is a common trope within Hostel. So yes, while I do like that they do totally like flip things and play against our expectations, I also knew to anticipate that going into this film because that's what Hostel does. Uh, and that's what the Hostel series has always done. And while I do appreciate it, I also feel like it feels more tired in this film. And that when they do sometimes throw out a twist such as that, it feels a little more forced or desperate. Um, I never was actually really shocked or surprised. I expected a lot of these things to happen. It's just at certain times in the storyline, it feels very much... Like it's happening for the sh- the sake of shock factor, if anything. It doesn't necessarily always feel like it's benefiting the story. And that happens with a few situations that come up further down the line where there are things that just feel straight out of films we've seen before within this uh, within this franchise. I can appreciate that. I, I thought it was just an interesting way to start the film because it, really in this in this franchise, at the up until this point, the Americans have been the victims. And the, you know, the, it's the foreigners that have been the the aggressors, with the exception of like, you know, the uh, the character in the, at the end of Hostel 2, the the one that is one of the members of this elite um, hunting club that gets his dick cut off. Uh, <laughs> um, but, you know, it's 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 kind of the the, the old cliche of, you know, f- well, foreigners are bad. Americans are, are going to be victims of foreigners if they're out in their foreign country. So I thought that starting it out. And really setting it up one way and going the other route with Travis, because what he ends up doing is he ends up giving Victor and um, Anka beers because they offer him vodka very suspiciously. Like Victor takes the vodka bottle out and there's a close up of the bottle and the liquid moving in the bottle. He's like, oh, you want some vodka, American boy? And Travis is like, "Uh, no. How about a beer? I brought some beer. So he gives him a beer. You know, they drink it. Uh, Anka goes to take a shower. And Victor is, wants to give Travis a card to a exclusive club, which is another, uh, as you mentioned, another trope that we're familiar with by now, right? But that's another kind of layer to pile onto these two characters to make us think that they are the villains because he's very insistent in getting Travis this card for this club. So he goes into the bathroom while Anka's showering and all of a sudden you hear him start screaming. Hey, come in here. She's she's having a heart attack. I need your help. You need your help. And again, it's set up for us to think that they are just trying to lure him in the bathroom, right? To to attack him. But once he gets in there, we see Anka is laying on the floor, passed out, and all of a sudden Victor starts, you know, losing consciousness himself. And this is when it is revealed that Travis is indeed the villain. He calls some goons, they come, put the bodies in body bags, put them in the back of a van, and drive away. Right off the bat, first off, I definitely would have to say this is the most lackluster opening of the three films. Um, and for me, and I'm shocked I'm going to say this because I like Eli Roth, but I mean, he sure as hell ain't my favorite. Um, but I appreciate certain things he does. And I will say that with this film, it's very clear that they're trying to make it look and feel like a product of Eli Roth. Um, from the way it's filmed to the way it's structured to the fact that the term faggot and gay comes up multiple times because he sure likes his gay slurs. It just, they're trying to really make it feel 
like something crafted by Eli Roth, but at the end of the day, it simply is not. And this opening scene for me, it's really glaring proof of that because there is a certain elegance and uh, overall cinematic quality that he does often bring to his films that this film just sorely lacks. And an example for me is the whole buildup moment of the consumption of the beer leading to the bit with the shower with Victor calling out to Travis and Travis walks into the room and then Victor passes out and it's revealed that Travis is the bad guy. To me, if this were a sequence directed by Eli Roth, it would have been 10 times more filled with dread and suspense and buildup. Um, and it really lacks here for me. And, and uh, it just, it's just very obvious that they really wanted viewers here to feel like they were watching an Eli Roth film. And it just, it just never, ever feels like one, even though it has the hostile title, they never match his quality of filmmaking uh, or his style. Most of all, his style. Yeah. You know, say what you want about Eli Roth. I mean, I don't, I don't mind him. I know he's one of those polarizing figures in the horror community. I don't mind him. I mean, he, he, I, I like the hostile films. I like, uh, cabin fever. I liked green inferno for the most part. He, you're right. He has a very distinct style. Say what you want about the guy. He obviously has a immense passion for the genre. Uh, and his films definitely show that like he has a he has a wonderful eye and he is great at building suspense and tension. And uh, yeah, I, I, I get that here. It's it's kind of lacking, which is surprising because it is in the hands of a director who, I mean, has worked very closely with with Sam Raimi. But I feel like it, it, it's it was budget. I think it was. I think it was. A lot of it though is also pace, pacing to me. Eli Roth, I will say, he paces his movies in a way that when it's not horror based, it, it moves pretty quick. He gets a lot of story get he tells a lot of story quickly, um, and then he spends a lot of time in the suspense and the dread and the building up within the actual moments. This film is it's paced in a way that feels kind of clunky, and even when they get to the horror, sometimes it doesn't feel as impactful. Um, so as, as we will learn as we go on through this, and I'm not trying to slam the filmmaker either, cause it's not like it's incompetent. It certainly is not. It's just, it feels like it's missing something. Oh no, no. I mean, it's, I don't feel like you're slamming the filmmaker. It's just, it is what it is. You know, I mean, maybe filmmakers take jobs for all kinds of reasons and it doesn't mean that they necessarily had a, a passion for the material that they've chosen to direct or they have been chosen to direct. So you know, I feel like Eli Roth has the wonderful benefit of writing his films. Uh, he wrote Hostel. He wrote Hostel too, so he has a deep connection to those. And you know, as a writer myself, and a writer, you you write your own stuff. So when you're writing a script, you automatically in your mind are visualizing exactly how you want it to play out on 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 film, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, I mean, you get a you get a director in here, Scott Spiegel, even though he has the experience, comes in, he might have read the script and like, oh, this is a piece of shit, but I'll do it because I need a paycheck, you know, and just not have a strong connection to it. And it, 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 that could show. I mean, that might that might be the issue. Who knows? I'm just throwing that out there. Yeah. I do want to say that I would absolutely fuck the shit out of Victor in a heartbeat. Oh, he, um, and at one point he, he says, I... 
I look at everything that moves. And I'm like, you look at everything, Victor? Because come look at this. Oh, God. When he's first introduced, he's wearing his little, you know, his shirt, which is wide open. And you see his washboard abs, his pecs. I was thinking, mm-hmm. Actually, I will tell you, this, this film, for the most part, has a really pretty cast. For the most part, yeah. 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 Anyway, so that's the opening scene. We cut to one of our protagonists, Scott who is on the porch kissing his fiance Amy goodbye when an, uh, a shuttle van shows up to take him to the airport and out comes Carter played by Kit Pardue, who has been in a shit ton of stuff. Basically what we find out is it's Scott is getting married to Amy and he's going away for his bachelor party weekend. And it's supposed to be in Palm Springs. Because Amy is very adamant in telling Carter not to let Scott bang any strippers, which we think, oh, you know, she's just being, but, but it comes in, we come to find out that that particular little jab has a lot more meaning than just being a joke. Right. So, you know, Scott gets in the van with Carter and we find out Carter has no intention of taking him to Paul Springs. They are going to fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. The glamour. I do like that in this scene. And when I say I like, I actually think that it's a rather weak point. Literally, this plot point is is solved by Scott saying, we're not going to Palm Springs, are we? And and um, Carter's like, nope, we're going to Las Vegas. And there's like no no debating it, no arguing, nothing. Like Scott's like, okay. And like for me, I'm like, in reality, like this would be a conversation that would – Oh, absolutely. I'm so much more like I would be like, no, we, we can't. My fiance said no. Like, and he just accepts it without any hesitation. But let's, but let's be honest. The men in this film are shitty. Well, and that's, a, that is another point I've been waiting to bring up all of them. But the men in every hostile movie have been shitty. Well, yes. And that is a problematic in its own right. Have they not learned their lesson? <laughs> from the, <laughs> listen, the first, the first film, the the three well i mean i don't want to see all three guys but for the most part the the men portrayed in the first movie are all kind of douchebags then you got the second film and i think they really righted a wrong by introducing a you know a protagonist who happened to be female but still a protagonist who is rather likable and strong um and then i feel like when we got to this film we took a step backwards and we literally just saw another take on the exact same characters we saw in the first film I would agree because these guys, with the exception of one, whom I love, yeah, I do too, and I uh, w- wait till we get to that point, are are just douches. Like they're they're horrible, especially the Mike character. I mean, oh ooh. my god, yeah, yeah. But now we get they arrive in Las Vegas. Apparently, I mean, it just we get cut to Las Vegas, and they are this is their one day that they had a filming where they threw the two actors in a limo and put a GoPro on the top of it, and drove down the strip. <laughs> And I was like, oh, look, we were just there. There's there's Bally's. There's Planet Hollywood. Woohoo. I feel like the chemistry between these two guys is not, at least early in the film, feels very scripted. Uh, there's a few moments where I feel very much like the, I, it looks as though someone is in the car saying, OK, now throw that wine glass out the window. And he like does it. And he's like, ha ha. And it just doesn't. It feels very wooden at, uh, at times. I wouldn't say that's true throughout the entire film and it's not even that these actors are necessarily bad because they're not but the chemistry 
Another thing to be said about the Hostel films is while characters are unlikable, at least I've always bought that these people are people who have been in each other's lives and have relationships, both within the first film and the second film. I really believe that these people had some form of a chemistry with each other. This movie, it kind of seems like they just picked people out of a casting line and were like, okay, we're filming in two weeks. Learn your lines. Well, I feel like, you know, I, I also feel like they were really trying to capture the whole success of The Hangover as well, which had just come out, you know, a year before this film did, which Vegas, a group of friends go for a bachelor party. Shit happens to them. That cast, even though it's a comedy, I'm, I'm comparing comedy to her, but that cast had immense chemistry. You, you, and, but then you get this and I feel like they were like, oh, let's, you know, let's put a hostile film in, in, in Vegas and kind of make it like a, you know, the hangover meets hostile. But it just, yeah, the, 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 the friendships here, the four main characters, there is, it's really, there's really lacking a, a spark between the four of them. But I guess I forgive it because it sort of is right. I don't want to say right. But it sort of makes sense by the end of the film why there isn't such a strong connection between the four of them. I don't know. That was my mind. I was like, okay, well I can forgive there not being such a strong chemistry between you guys because of what happens at the end. But still it is sort of, it's problematic that you are supposed to care about these group of friends and and their journey, but they don't even really seem to care. Right. Yeah. I I would, that's exactly the right, term for this it doesn't really seem like anyone here really cares all that much about one another which i mean with a directed dvd movie i guess what am i expecting (laughs) well after the opening credits we do get a shot of this large creepy building and this is the first moment that you realize this film is not taking this this is not filmed in las vegas or nevada right because this building i mean the southwest has a very distinct style of architecture. They have to because of the heat. Yeah. You know, this, this building is obviously not, uh, in Nevada anywhere. So I don't know what they were thinking, but we do get this large building and Victor happens to wake up in a cage, um, with Anka, his girlfriend's across the way from him in a cage. And these two guys come in and take poor Anka out of her cage screaming and or, and poking her with a cattle prod. While Victor's like, you motherfuckers, I'm going to kill you. Interestingly enough, we never find out what happens to her. No, no. And I, I was hoping to at least have some form of a reveal. Uh, but we never see her again. So, I mean, clearly I'm assuming that she has died. But uh, one thing I also, this we really start to see the interior of where they're being kept at this point. This is the first time we've really witnessed this. Um, and this is like a very specific note, but the last two Hostel films very much uh, embraced the grittiness and griminess of the interiors of the venues in which these characters were located. They felt very authentically just disgusting, like just wet, slimy, dirty, grungy. This set feels very much like it's been set decorated to appear that way. And that is one of the things that really kind of takes the wind out of the sails right away. It looks like a set, especially these cage sequences that we see. 
and this moment where she's pulled out of this cage here, you really see just how much they've downgraded these environments as compared to the more high-tech cages that you've seen in the previous films. It does make you feel like this Las Vegas endeavor is a it's in its first year. Um, <laughs> they're just they're just getting the ball rolling, and they're really like finding their footing with it. Like it's 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 the first time they've tried expanding out <laughs> to like uh, other countries. I'm assuming it, it, it's that's a, that's a perfect word for it. It's very it looks exactly like a set. It's like three cages right next to each other. And there's no. It's almost like yeah, the building itself. It's almost like it's just it's sanitized. They tried to they tried to make it. I don't know. It just, it, it really lacks the, the grittiness of the first two films, but it's Vegas. I mean, uh, we cut back to the guys and they are checking in. So I love this because you could tell right away. They, they could not afford to get the rights to any of the casino in Vegas's names because they're checking into the Excelsior hotel and casino. Yeah, I saw that. I was like, what? I was like, what is that? Is that one that exists? And then I was like, wait, that's like one of the names that they took and they've just very much morphed it to be like what they needed to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's a sensible hotel and casino with strippers, you know, dancing in the in the um, in the casino um, on poles. Yeah, we get this elongated shot of one of the strippers twerking into the camera and it's like. 10 seconds longer than it needs to be. And then they play it again. Like they come back to the exact same shot of the exact same ass, just twerking in slow motion. These cheeks just clapping together. I was like, okay, like what more am I expecting? It's hostile three. Like, <laughs> yeah, you gotta, you, you gotta, you know, show some ass and tits. It's a hostile movie. Although yeah. it, this film lacks any ass. I mean, it, besides yeah. that, there's no nudity in this film at all. Yeah, this movie is across the board, and everything that Hostel offers, the series has offered thus far, this one feels very much neutered, from the tits and the ass to the gore. Yeah, because remember the the the, the opening scene of ho- the original Hostel when the guys first get to the um to the, the where they're staying, and uh, what's his name, Josh? Josh is walking down the hall, and he, there's he's peeking into these rooms, and you're getting like women tits out, ass out, pussies out, you know. I th- and then you see this film where you have almost a very similar opening with the um, Travis character walking down the hall at the beginning and walking past that girl, but she's fully dressed. I mean, she's I mean, she's wearing lingerie, but yeah, you're it's like they we got Anka. That was that was it. That was the big show. Well, we got we saw her. We saw her butt cheeks. Well, you saw her 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 boozles for a moment as she like dropped trow and she saw him like hanging down but after that like i really don't think we see we get a lot of dames i will say this there are a lot of gals in these little like overall getups working here within the hostel they're waitresses and they're dressed in a way that like the straps on their overall ensembles just barely cover the areola of their uh, of their of their nipple uh but they still are covered <laughs> That's going to be my outfit next time we meet up in Vegas. Got it. You and me both. So we, we walk into a place where like we work here. They're like, get the fuck out. <laughs> okay. So now we are introduced to the other two men who are joining Carter and, and um, Scott on this weekend bachelor celebration. We get Mike. Oh, what's there to say about Mike? He's a fucking pill. Racist. He's so obnoxious. Obnoxious. Homophobic. 
he doesn't say a single thing over the course of his time in this film that's likable. Oh God, no! He calls he's he's bitching about his wife. He calls her a, he calls her a fat pig. Uh, he's trying to convince he's trying to convince Scott not to get married because he says it's a, it's going to just turn into a nightmare. Um, he's blatantly says a racist statement to the um, blackjack dealer about Asians being unlucky. But then we also get though we get jo- we get um um what's his name Justin Justin yes and he is by far by far the most likable and endearing individual within this group Uh, so much more than anybody because everyone else really is just kind of shitty even scott like scott's not necessarily bad but like it doesn't seem like he really cares about his fiance all that much he makes some weird choices over the course of the movie justin justin's storyline it's like someone while writing the script somebody is like okay we need to give somebody some trait to make them somewhat sympathetic or else it really is just going to be a bunch of assholes and you need to like somebody here. So they made the choice to give Justin an issue where his one leg is in his word, he has a gimp leg uh, where he, he has to operate with a cane at all times and smart choice to make also make him the most likable character because he definitely seems like the character out of the four men who is maybe seen a little bit more hardship or has gone through a bit more. And because of that, like he's just a little bit more down to earth and real um, and not mean, not shitty. And he's automatically the character you start rooting for just because he, he makes the best choices over the course of the film. Yeah. He's, he's just a genuinely sweet guy. And you know, he, he realizes that he, that, and it's, it's sad because he's, you know, women aren't going to flock to him. He needs to comment several times that women don't want a gimp. Right. And there's a couple scenes in the film where, a, uh, there's one particular scene where a girl goes to talk to him and he turns around and she sees that he has his cane and she's like, Oh, never mind. I have to go back to my friends. It's, it's like, why would you treat this poor guy? He's cute. He's so he's cute. Sweet, he's a sweetheart. And you wonder why he's hanging around with these three fuck faces. Really? And you can tell the one thing I do like with his characterization is you can even tell that he's kind of over it too. Like they cut to a lot of his expressions at certain points where he's like uncomfortable with things that Mike will say, or he will question certain choices before anybody else. Um, He's definitely written to be like the conscience of the, of the film. And I appreciate having that because without him, it really would just be, a fully a full cast of just shitty unlikable people. Well, and here's the thing: if they would have just went to Cirque du Soleil like he wanted to, this never would have happened. They'd all still be alive. Did you catch the moment, Troy, where they made a comment? I, I hope I wrote it down because I'm trying to think. It's something along the lines of um, this: like they say, make a joke about him being into dudes, and he said, like, "Well, not all the time," or something like yeah. that. What, what was no, the? Y- what was I, it? I don't I don't remember the exact phrasing, but um, yeah, he uh, he suggested they go. He suggests they go to Cirque du Soleil because he has tickets. And Mike said, oh, not only are you a cripple, you're gay, too, huh? And he made he says something like, well, not all the time. And I was like, oh, listen, I you can keep that cane wherever you need to keep it, buddy. We're going to have ourselves a good time. We could involve it if you want to. I would never shun you for your little gimp leg. If anything, I'll put kisses all over that little gimp leg. But the, uh, amount, of, but the amount of homosexual slurs in this film. Unacceptable. I mean, yeah, they just come. I mean, so because you want to go to Cirque du Soleil, you're gay. Okay. 
<laughs> That's hilarious. It's 2011. <laughs> I, I mean, know. Come, come uh, on. And I get like, you know, Hostel has always, ever since the first Hostel, it's very much been Eli Roth's trope of having unlikable characters who say things without censorship. They kind of say like exactly what you expect these douchey dudes to be saying to one another. And it does feel very authentic, but it's also very like frustrating and it makes you kind of feel like, Oh, are people really still like that? Is that what people are saying in their shadows, like to one another? Yes, they, they, they are, they are Roger. And, you know, I know that that's a huge criticism that Eli Roth gets. Um, you know, people like to say that, Oh, he, he does bro whore, you know, uh, or douche or like douchebag or yeah. And, and, you know, yeah, the first hostel uses the word faggot several times, but yes, that's how people are. I work, I work in a high school. You would be surprised at how many male, male groups of guys that are bros and friends that I hear walking down the hall, calling each other faggot and shit to the, I mean, and, and you would think based on what has happened and how that's become such a focused on issue and slur that people wouldn't do that anymore, but they do. I mean, it's a reality. So you get, you get these four kind of jock, you know, guys together alone for a weekend. It's bound to come out. But I do like the fact that Justin does make the, the very blatant hint that he could be gay because think about it. He, I mean, he does have a few instances where he talks about maybe being with a woman, but it's not like he's certainly not as horny and revved up as the other three guys are to get pussy. I think what's hinted at here is that this character may actually be someone who is bisexual, openly kind of in a way admitting it to himself. And probably because he's in a situation where he is oftentimes finding himself uh, having to you know, struggling to find people who will give him the time of day due to his unfortunate situation, which is which is truly sad. Um, he is just probably more open-minded to that at this point in his life because he's just trying to find people who will look past that, uh, regardless of gender, regardless of how they identify. So I think it was a, a very, actually, w smart choice to hint at that for that specific character because that seems like a realistic journey for somebody in that position. You contrast that with how Josh acts in the first Hostel. Remember when they're on the train at the beginning and that guy who ends up actually is, is the one to kill him uh, touches his leg. Remember this? And he grabs his yeah. leg and just freaks the fuck out. And he's like, I'm not no fucking faggot. Don't you fucking touch me, you fucking faggot. You contrast that with this particular scene where Justin is blatantly called gay. And he's like, oh, yeah, sometimes, whatever. I mean, so I guess there is a little bit of progressiveness there. but. Uh, I'm I, I'm grasping at straws. <laughs> yeah, we're reaching for it. I'll also say that what this film doesn't have is Jay Hernandez being one of the people saying the term faggot. Because let me tell you, if anyone's a, if I'm gonna let anyone call me a faggot as they put their hands around my throat and push me up against a wall and and let me mount them, it's gonna be Jay fucking Hernandez. God damn it, Danny! Well, he's so he's adorable in, in in the first hostel, Paxton. Mm -hmm. Paxton can yeah. get it. Yeah. Oh, mama life. And you know, you think mama about life. like, you think about the connection to the hostile two made to the first film with killing him off in the opening scene. 
Oh my god. I, I that opening is yeah, so shocking. And, but this film doesn't have any connection to the first two films, which I found interesting. Uh that they couldn't bring it they couldn't find a way somehow to tie all the films together with like a common element uh besides this elite hunting club. I'm talking about something like a character returning or a character being mentioned. And there's no connection and I just found it interesting. It's almost like you know, that's almost like this didn't even really need to be a hostile film. Uh, absolutely. I mean, you know what I would have loved at the very end of it, in the midst of all the chaos, if you could be Jordan Ladd showed up, with a <laughs> showed up with a shotgun and just saving the day in, in, in her husband's honor and Paxton's honor. Give me that after that little cameo. But yeah, there was really nothing. And that I think that was like one of the big letdowns for me, honestly, is because I have always appreciated how the second hostile while it was very much its own story, really felt like it was just building off of of what was established in the first film. Whereas this film seems like it almost um, dilutes it a little bit. Yeah, so the guys are trying to decide what to do. When we are introduced to Kendra and Nikki, who are very much presented as the femme fatales that we are used to having in this series, uh, that are going to lure the guys away. They come over to the guys and ask them, "Hey, what do you guys? What do you guys want to do? You guys want to come party with us?" Mike suggests they just go up to his the hotel room and get in the jacuzzi. And Nikki's like, "Oh, you're smooth. No, what do you guys want to do?" And Scott's like, "I don't know. What do you guys suggest?" And they say very ominously, "We know a place, but it's off the strip, far off the strip." <laughs> and they're like, "Do you like freaky?" And what ends up happening is they agree to go with these girls to this random secret club. Right off the bat, Troy, you and I, these gals come up, or in our case, these, they would be men. Because the women, we'd be like, go bark up another tree. But if you get two guys come up, they're like, this place, it's a little freaky. Do you like freaky? I'd be like, no, I'm 35. I'm exhausted. Where, no, I am going back to sleep. Have <laughs> have a good evening. And I can attest, guys. And if anybody, I can attest to this. When we were in Vegas, Roger was the latest he ever stayed up the entire time we were there. It was ten p.m. <laughs> I am. I live the life of a sixty-five-year-old woman with seven cats. I can't do it. I don't have it in me. And so immediately, I would just be like, "Go, you know what? Go find other people to take advantage of." I'm exhausted. But yeah. So the, one thing right away that makes kind of painted Scott a little poorly is, you know, he's got this fiance as, as we've already mentioned, we'll learn that he has had some um, issues with cheating and he's the one to be like, yeah, that sounds cool. That sounds hip. Like, why is it, why would we think this is the right choice for us this evening? You who's about to get married. Well, when they ask, they ask him, do you like freaky Scott? And he's like, "Mm, yeah, I do. Uh, yeah, so he's he's gung ho to go on this journey, and you are right. I was in Scott's, you know, I was in Scott's corner. I'd like to be in more than his corner, but I was in his corner up until this particular point. Yeah, can we just stop? Scott is handsome. Oh my, he's very handsome. Very. I'm not going to take that away from him, but he's not necessarily the most likable protagonist. Um, and I do like at this point, like I mean, I don't know how far would you say we're into the film at this point? Maybe 20 minutes, if even, and. They don't have the budget to really elaborate on things, so they they just taxi them, right? To they taxi them right in. 
And we have to, we just have to point out, I've, I'm, I've said, I said this in the Leprechaun three episode. I'm very familiar with Las Vegas. I've been there many times. Uh, I'm going to be even more familiar with it here pretty quick, but I'm very familiar with Las Vegas. This is not Las Vegas. (laughs) I don't care how far off the strip you go. There is not one damn street in Las Vegas that looks like this street that this club is on. This is clearly downtown Detroit, Michigan. Clearly. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's like just like this huge, massive warehouse. And the whole time we're in Vegas, we never saw anything that even looked remotely like it. And it's so like desolate and like shadowed. (laughs) And Vegas is the city of lights. I mean, there is not one street in Vegas that is going to be pitch black like this. I mean, and Vegas has its own aesthetic. I mean, it's surrounded by mountains. You don't, it's like, come on guys, who are you fooling? You know, if you didn't have the budget, why do it? You know, exactly. Um, so, and I do like that this, everybody, and it, you're right. What you said at the beginning, it kind of gets a little tiring that every fucking secondary character that comes into play in this film has to be presented very sinisterly because even this cab driver is presented to be very sinister. He pulls up and the guys are like, uh, this doesn't look like a party place. This looks like a warehouse. And he's like, Oh, are you afraid I'm going to pull my cab into the back alley when Robbie and have my friends cut your heads off? And he says it with like a thick, like Romanian accent on top of that. So you don't trust anybody. Uh, but half of the time, these people are just like everyday people who are just unusually suspicious and ominous. It's a strange choice. It's a strange choice. They go to the building, they get out, they knock on the door. Uh, a burly, angry security guard answers. And they're like, oh, we're here for the party. And he's like, who sent you? They're like, Kendra and Nikki. So he lets them in. Again, acting very sinister. This place, uh, Roger, okay, you would be in bed, okay? But if I was I was here I, I would be with fine. whoever, I'd walk in here and I'd be like, I would turn around and leave. Like, <laughs> Absolutely not. Yeah. It looks like an abandoned hospital. And it has, there's like sewage on the floors. Everything about it is so foreboding. The taxi driver, the bouncer, the location, nothing seems trustworthy. I would be like, just get me back to Resort World, please. I want, I need to go to Sun's Up, Bun's Up, or whatever that place was and get me an egg sandwich. I'm over this. Yeah, give me a mimosa, (laughs) my lord. Right? So as they're walking down the hall, Amy calls Scott. And the guys make fun of him for being pussy whipped, but he answers and she is very concerned and she has a right to be. She's like, you were supposed to call me when you got to the hotel. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry. I got busy. And she makes the comment. I don't have to worry about you, do I? And he's like, come on, don't start that. I got to go. We're walking in someplace. And he just like hangs up on her. One of the things that feels the most Eli Roth about this film is the way they handle the character of Amy. She is something straight out of an Eli Roth movie. He is so notorious for having, I want to say secondary, but it's more like fourth dairy (laughs) female characters who like appear in a scene or two. And it's like a wife or a concerned girlfriend. And they like are only there during like phone calls. And then they're never hinted at again. You got that in knock, knock. You got that in, you've got that with Jordan Ladd's cameo in hostile two. You've got that scattered through, a lot of his films. You even got it in Green Inferno when you had like the character of Casey played by Sky Fiara, who 
is seemingly to, like, going to become a more pivotal character and it just never comes back. Like, you never revisit her. And it's funny because she's like a re like a reasonably well-known musician. She's been in several films and I really anticipated like seeing more from her. And then in that film, he just kind of just like disregarded her. She never came back. So in this film, you have this character of Amy who like she's sprinkled, not even scattered, barely sprinkled throughout the movie. Um, and it just feels very much like perfectly placed within a film that's set in an Eli Roth universe because he oftentimes does, not do his female characters justice. I wouldn't say every movie, but a lot of times I would say this, the, he writes for his male characters and then he gives his female characters the leftovers. Um, and that's very much how the character of Amy feels because she's concerned, but that's all she is. She's the concerned fiance. Well, honestly, every female character in this film to me is secondary and not given justice to their role in the film, if that yes. makes any sense. But we will get there. Uh, he gets off the phone with Amy and the guys have went ahead of him. So he's alone in the hallway when all of a sudden someone wraps a hood over his head, straps him to a wheelchair, starts rolling him down the fucking hallway, gets him to a spot and then shoves a funnel down his throat and pours liquid down it. Now, it's very jarring because of the way it's presented with the mu music and stuff. We re I, I thought, oh, my God, they're killing him off. They're poisoning him. They're but it's not. It is a he is being wheeled into his bachelor party and what is being forced down his throat, which I don't care if it's alcohol, water. I'm sorry. Having a funnel shoved down your throat and a literal gallon of alcohol poured down it cannot be safe. He could have died, uh, especially with him not knowing what's going on. Like a lot of things could have gone wrong. But this moment they reveal this party for what it is like, I'm sorry, this is the trashiest fucking party I've ever seen. Like I look at this party, I look at the women attending this party, and I think that this whole thing smells like yeast infection and baby oil and farts and beer. And that's like, that's <laughs> it's just so gross. It is the most disgusting environment. Nobody attending looks appealing. How did these people get invited to this goddamn bachelor party? Like, who are these people? What is this place? This random abandoned warehouse? I don't trust anybody here, especially the woman with the tattoo around her nipple. <laughs> well, what we come to find out is Carter set this all up. Uh, he paid for this party. He actually paid for Kendra and Nikki to approach them to to get them to this place because it is he's paying for his friend's bachelor party, right? Kendra immediately takes um, Scott upstairs to the champagne room so they can talk. This is the scene where a, a girl does come up to Justin and try to talk to him until he turns around and she sees his cane and she's like, oh, sorry, I got to go. And Nikki goes off with Mike. And I'm sorry, Nikki is beautiful, yeah, right? Yeah. The actress is gorgeous. Oh, yeah. Are you trying to tell me? Okay, I'm not being me. Mike is the least attractive of the four by far. Oh, my God, by far. So I'm, if I'm a, I don't get, if I'm a hooker, I, I still have taste. Like, I, I, Justin's looking good. Yeah, but, but Mike is also drunk. And he's, I mean, for her, she's like, oh, this is a quick buck versus Justin, who seems to really have his, a good head on his shoulders. He's probably not even going to be receptive to a hooker to begin with. She probably just took the easier option. But I do like the little moment where, like, the girl declines Justin and he take he turns around and he takes his cane and he beats it against the bar. He's like, still stays hard. Don't, don't. And like, <laughs> I was like, you poor guy. I'll help you out. <laughs> uh, I do. And you do get this nice 
actually, it's just kind of a sweet moment with Nikki where she does. I just, I just kind of, you know, shit on her a little bit, but she does actually see this and she looks at, she, she tells Justin, she's like, you know what? You're, you're a very nice guy. You know, I'm going in with Mike and she gives him her business card and tells him that he can contact her. I mean, I'm saying that's an, it's a nice moment. It's literally a hooker giving, giving a guy a business card, but I mean, at least she shows some, you know, semblance of, yeah. of caring about what just happened because she saw that it hurt him. Uh, yeah. You know, so uh, Kendra is trying upstairs her best to get Scott to sleep with her. And I'm like, girl, I don't blame you. I would be trying to get that dick out too. But he actually does. I have to give him some credit. He does decline. And he actually yeah. reveals to her that he actually cheated on his wife the previous year. And she found out about, or his fiance, she found out about it. And despite finding out about it, she stuck with him. So now he really feels like he has to be faithful to her. That being said, he does give the speech as Kaylee is literally straddling. Or I'm sorry, Kendra. Straddling Is it him. Kendra? <laughs> it's yeah, so Kendra. While Kendra is <laughs> straddling him like on this couch, like she's just perched oh, yeah. atop his crotch. Uh, but he does decline sex. So, I mean, there's something to be said. At the same time, uh, Nikki and, and Mike come in and yeah, he is drunk. Mike is drunk off his fucking ass. They interrupt. They, they're going to they're going to do their business. And uh, all of a sudden, Scott isn't feeling well. So he says, I have to go get air. So he stumbles outside, goes outside, throws up. The door closes behind him and it's locked and he can't get back inside. So he's banging on the car. He's banging on the door, right? The same time, the cab driver apparently has never left because he's still sitting in the same spot. Do not cab drivers make money from actually driving around picking people up? Why is he still sitting? Well, when they show him, Troy, he's just watching this happen and he has this look on his face. It is the most like ominous scowl. They make this guy look like he's about to literally gut Scott right there on the street. And he gets out. He slowly stalks towards Scott as Scott's like, let me in, leave me alone. And Scott passes out. And we get a quick shot of him being picked up by the cab driver. And now, again, to kind of uh, subvert our expectations, we get a scene of the the ominous van driving down this secluded desert highway to this big building that we've already seen that we know is where all this torture shit has taken place. And it cuts to Scott's eyes flickering open, and you kind of you it, you're 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 trying to adjust to what he's seeing at the same time. And it it's I, I do like this little moment because we are very much led to believe that Scott was just abducted, right? But he wakes up and what he's seeing is Carter making a smoothie in the blender of their hotel room. He has made it back to the hotel room with Justin and Carter. And we find out that this ominous, sinister cab driver was actually a very good Samaritan who picked Scott up off the ground and put him in the cab and took him back to his hotel room. And then we never see the cab driver again. We never see him again. But we do see that Mike is missing. And they think that he just stayed with uh, with Nikki the whole night. But Scott's like, that doesn't seem right. Like, he knows our plane is leaving today. Why is he not here? Which they do make the point to say their plane is leaving that day. But then, like, it's never talked about again. And they go, like, gallivanting around the city. <laughs> uh, Scott calls the uh, Mike's voicemail, gets voicemail, doesn't doesn't answer. 
And now we see where Mike is. He is the one that's been abducted. He wakes up in the cage. Victor is still there. I kind of feel bad for Victor in a way because, you know, the the whole, I guess, set, the whole setup is like these people are being abducted. And then like the killer, the person that actually gets to do the killing or the torturing gets to choose which person they want to kill. Right. And nobody wants to kill poor Victor. He's just he's just stuck in this cage the entire movie. Yeah. How does he last that? Long? I don't know. I mean, he's but- very- He's very attractive. You would think that like, you would think he'd be like a a prime target for someone to want to kill, that they would get an adrenaline rush killing this like really well-built, fucking muscular, handsome Ukrainian. But no, nobody wants to kill him. They want to kill the fucking Mike because somebody comes in and gets Mike and they take him out of the cage while Victor looks on and they're sticking him with a cattle prod. Okay. So I want to say this. I do want to say this, and I don't know if you agree with me or not, but as much as we talk about this character of Mike being annoying and, you know, the acting being decent, I will say from this point forward until his death, I think this actor is actually really exceptional in displaying like confusion, fear. It, it, feel, it felt very raw, his emotions and realistic. I thought the screaming, like the guttural screaming, like he's like, I don't know what's going on. I'm so confused and leave me. And he just like, it felt real. It felt real. He, he sold it for me. He sold it for me. I Troy have the complete opposite note. Isn't that funny? And it, and I actually watched this with my, my partner with Gustavo. Um, and, and he was on the same page. Uh, we were curious if maybe this actor is possibly a comedian or does more comedic style acting normally because we found this scene just to be actually rather comedic, um, which is certainly was not the intention. But he, his response to the whole thing seemed very big and not na- not natural to me. It really did not feel like a natural performance at all, especially as it built up to him getting tied down and what have you. Uh Previous moments like this in the f- films before felt so f- visceral and terrifying, and and uh, this scene just felt comical to me. E- even down to once we start to see what's happening with the screens and the graphics being operated by the patrons getting to select what happens and so forth. Uh, all of these little details really just also honed in on the tinier budget. So as an, as far as opening kills go, because this does build up to be an opening kill, this one was not impressive to me. There's a few cool shots of, an, of a makeup effect coming up here, but even that you could tell that they had to frame it specifically uh, because overall this scene um, and the actor did not impress me. Oh, see, I have, I, I feel a total opposite. I, 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 I uh, regarding the actor. Now I don't like, I don't like the setup. I don't like the whole betting on the thing. I mean, I think this kill is very lackluster. Um, there's no suspense or tension really leading up to the particular kill. And it's pretty obvious what the, what the killer is going to do from the get go. Once he reveals the, um, the mask and, and traces it on his face. But I will disagree with you about the actor. I thought that his, you know, knowing what we know about the Mike character and his personality uh, I thought that his reaction was very genuine and, and realistic. It kind of, it kind of got to me, but I'm, I'm a sucker for people begging for their life. I don't know. Maybe that makes me a, 
you know, a, a pussy horror fan, but like when you get a scene when somebody is really begging for their life and begging for, you know, something not to, bad to happen to them. And we know it inevitably is going to, it bothers me. And that's one of the reasons why I really have a hard time watching Heather Matarazzo's death scene in, in Hostel 2 because of that. I, I it just, I, I don't know. I have, I don't like that <laughs> because there was another film we just talked about where that same thing kind of happened. And it just, it just really affects me. You know, it's over the top a little bit. And you, you, you definitely think hit the nail on the head with him being a comedian, because if you look him up, the actor's name is Skyler, oh, Skyler Cook or something like that. He is a comedian. Um, so you, you, you honed into that very well, but basically what happens to him is he's tied to a chair. Curtains are open, and this is the first time it is revealed that there is this beautiful lounge with lots of lovely cocktail waitresses just, you know, strutting around, you know, serving drinks as we are. It's almost like we're just sitting in a bedding parlor at the MGM Grand. <laughs> uh, it really muddles the effectiveness of these death scenes. Oh my God. It's, I would say the, one of the weakest elements of the yeah. film. You do yeah. see like people betting, like what they're betting on, like what, uh, instrument he's going to be killed with and all this stuff. The first killer comes out and we talk about like people not being intimidating. This guy, this killer guy is not intimidating at all. Like he looks like a high school chemistry teacher and there's no like real, uh, you know, if you think about the other films, the the killers, the people that come in to actually kill the victims are all very, like, creepy. And they give the character a, a sense of evil and, and, and maniacal glee in what they're doing. This guy just comes in and there's no, there's no, like, sense of threat. It's like literally having your high school chemistry teacher come up to you and yell at you for chewing gum. Yeah, I, I think one thing that maybe did not do this actor's performance justice for me is also the fact that everything going on around him feels like like the wish knockoff of a hostile kill from from a film prior. Everything feels like we've kind of seen it before, just not nearly as good in this case. Um, and I'm going to mention a few really tiny, minute details that really like stood out to me as just being looking cheaper, feeling less impactful. I mentioned like all of the characters that are watching, you know, cause there is a crowd now, which that alone, I'm not a fan of. Um, but they've all got these boards that they're kind of like selecting, like bet betting on. Um, and we've seen this before in the second film, there was the usage of software to select, um, select contestants and so forth. And just like the graphics alone in this are some simplified and, far far less elaborate it just looks way cheaper and also there's a moment where the like the, you know we learn who the, who the the villain is going to be in this case starts to take out all of his like utensils and what he takes out is a foam mannequin head that i feel like i could get at like a spirit of halloween store and then a plastic face mask which i've definitely seen in a, a spirit of halloween store and like i just know if eli roth had this moment it would have been like far more stylized and specific and specialized for this moment because one thing that eli roth did aside from making his each of his killers is you know those who are doing the torture in the hostile films they always have a distinct personality aside from just being creepy they have a distinct 
personality. Think of all of the villains that we've seen before. Like a lot, many of them have intricate backstories. And if they don't, then they're at least portrayed in a way that they seem very unique and have a lot of traits to define who they are. You're right. This guy just looks like an average everyday guy that they cast in this role. And the kill that follows is just as bland as the person executing it. And he proceeds to take the mask and trace the outline of, of the mask around Mike's face. And then he starts to go through the process of what is cutting his face off. Um, which in concept is like, we've seen it before, but it could be a really cool effect. But even in the execution of this kill, they never show it full on. And when they, when they do finally have a moment where he turns to reveal the face and his hands, he's completely blocking Mike. And to me, it just seemed very clear that they're trying to block seeing the, the effect all too clearly, because I'm sure it just wasn't that amazing, but in close up at certain angles, it looks fine. So that, that works. But overall, it's like it seems like they are really just trying to like make it work with what they had, and it feels that way. It feels like they didn't have the budget to make something amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is a moment where he's trying to be like there's supposed to be some sort of a, a suspense being built because he takes a drill and turns it on and starts moving it towards uh, Mike's face, but then he abandons the drill and yeah, he traces he cuts he basically cuts his face off, holds it up to the audience. They all cheer and go wild. And then you do get a, a, a long shot of Mike sitting in the chair screaming and you, but you can't see the effect very well. You just see like his face is just red because his skin is just pulled off. And then the curtain closes and that is your opening kill. And you know, it is pretty, it's pretty lackluster um, compared to what we are used to with this particular franchise. But I mean, it is what it is. At least we don't have to deal with Mike anymore. So the guys are back at their hotel. They're worried about Mike. Carter is pretty dismissive of it. He's like, oh, he's probably just still with that fucking Kendra. And no, and Scott's like, no, we we kind of really got to find him because we, we need to be leaving. Should we call his wife? Justin remembers that he has Nikki's uh, business card and it has her email address on it. And apparently, Roger, if you have someone's email address, you can find out their home address. Because that's exactly what Justin does. They He uses Nikki's email address to find her home. We don't see this take place because he says he can do it. And then the scene cuts to them in a cab going to this trailer park where Kendra lives. They find her trailer. They break into it, which I thought was kind of a, a bold move. I mean, you're just going to break into this girl's trailer? Like, okay. Justin, obviously, he's the... He has the brains of the bunch. He's, he waits outside. They look around this trailer. Uh, there's nothing really distinct about anything they find. Um, and as they are getting ready to leave, Kendra and one of her, I guess, bodyguards comes busting in the, the trailer with guns drawn. Who the fuck is this guy? I don't know. And And like he never comes back. No, he never comes back, but they literally have their guns drawn. And it's like this moment, it's kind of, it's just kind of laughable because it's like, why, what are you like? Really? You're turning out this, turning this Kendra into a, into a badass where she's going to pull a gun on these guys. I do like that. Carter does get, he, he kind of has a smart mouth and he does get bashed in the face with the butt of the gun. Thank God. Yeah. He's, star he's starting to get on my nerves. Well, and I will say like 
the character of Kendra, she's not the worst actress ever, but she certainly isn't her strongest in this specific moment. She does way better when she's like, like in peril <laughs> or playing a stripper, you know, or a hooker. But these moments where she's like standing there with a gun, like giving her speech, it definitely didn't do her right. So yeah, it, it was definitely a strange twist when they show up at this damn uh, trailer park and start going through uh, Nikki's little shitty trailer, like going through all of her strap-ons and everything. You do see like a whole wall of all of her dildos. Cause I mean, she's a hooker. It makes sense. I get it. Uh, but yeah, it, it's, it's a weird little scene. It, it felt very off in this movie though. Well, she reveals because they tell her that they're there looking for Mike because he never came home. And she does reveal that Nikki never came home either. So they're going to retrace their steps and go back to where uh, Kendra and Mike were last seen. So they go to the building where they were at the party the night before. We cut to Nikki. We see that she is strapped to a table. As Travis, from the beginning, opening scene, has her dressed in a cheerleader outfit. He takes her to a room where this guy who speaks only Hungarian comes in the room and he's speaking to her in Hungarian and and she's tied to this thing wearing a cheerleader's outfit and he pours, squirts some liquid all over. He squirts it in her mouth and all over her chest. And the only English she says throughout this whole scene, he looks at her and he's like, nice and sweet, just like you. And then he goes over, pulls a sheet off of an aquarium that is full of these giant fucking cockroaches. These things are fucking huge. There's no suspense at all. He goes over, he gets a bucket full of these cockroaches and pours them all over her. And there is a obvious badly done CGI effect of these cockroaches crawling all over her and then going into her mouth as she's screaming. I don't understand, Troy, what it is about direct-to-DVD movies wanting to have, like, elaborate kills featuring insects or bugs, because they never go well. We've seen them with ants, we've seen them with uh, spiders, and we've seen them with cockroaches. And the the moment when it does cut back and you see some of these cockroaches are CGI and crawling across her face, as compared to the other real cockroaches surrounding her, it is very obvious which ones are CGI. It is very obvious. And then it cuts to the shot of her mouth opening and this and the cockroaches swarming inside. And that is significantly more each CGI than the last shot. So it was definitely like a letdown. Um, and this is now a, a second kill that really just was nowhere near, I think, what I was hoping for. Um, and I think one of the issues here is like they're trying to go. In this case, I think they're trying to do something way too big for their abilities within what they're trying to do with this movie. Like this kill is so much more like elaborate than it needs to be. Like it just doesn't make sense to me why this would be the outcome for her. It doesn't fit the hostile world. Exactly. You know what I mean? This isn't a kill that you would ever imagine seeing in the first or second film. It just seems really out of place. Yeah, it seems very forced in this like, world. Like, why yeah. is this? Yeah, why is this guy really? He he pays all this money to to kill a victim by using cockroaches. Yeah, I mean, I thought I, I thought part of the whole appeal of the people that were in this elite hunting club was they get they got off 
on the torture and the pain that they're inflicting on their victims. This guy literally does nothing except squirt some liquid on her and put some cockroaches on her. There's, he does nothing else to her. He doesn't even kill her. I mean, it's the cockroaches that kill her. It just seems so out of place. Well, and even like the lead up to the final moment where the, the cockroaches are swarming into her mouth, like she's covered with them for a moment and it's not violent. It's gross, but it's not pain. It doesn't look painful or gory. It just looks like uncomfortable. And that's like, you're right. That's exactly like not what Hostel is built off of. Like the last two movies, when you do see a moment of torture, it is the kind of violent torture that like makes you just sick to your stomach. I mean, you know? Yeah. Well, there's a reason why they're labeled torture porn, not right. insect porn. Yeah. I mean, it, it just, right. yeah, I didn't, I don't, this, I'm not a fan of this death scene at all. And then after it happens, fucking Travis has her body on the gurney in the back room telling her how hot she still is he's like oh "Oh." well and her body looks completely like normal like i mean she's dead but it's not like you know again with hostile i'd expect her to be disemboweled cut in half missing limbs no head but she's just laying there she's laying there very peacefully until he gets kind of close to her and a, a cgi cockroach does crawl out of her mouth that he proceeds to step on and crush but he takes a he takes a picture of her and then we go back to Kendra and Carter, Scott, Justin. They pull up to the old building that they were at the night before. But as they get there, as soon as they get there, Justin gets a text from Mike's phone. Uh, it's actually from Nikki's phone, but it's he says it's, it says it's Mike that he's been with Nikki the entire time and they've been sleeping. And to prove it. He sends a picture of Nikki and it happens to be the exact same picture that Travis just took. I'm sorry. She looks dead. We see she the, looks we, very dead. we see the picture. She's all discolored and they're like, Oh, look how pretty she is sleeping. I'm like, that bitch is dead. She's dead. She's right? absolutely dead. <laughs> oh, whatever. Okay. Uh, and then the, the next text is Mike quote unquote, telling them to meet him at this hotel room number nine. And they get a, um, a map address sent to them so they're on their way there's a point where um kendra says uh suggests that maybe mike has done something to nikki and scott says i know mike he wouldn't hurt anybody and i'm like fucker out of everybody you know in this film mike is the first person i would suspect would be shitty enough to inflict harm on somebody. So clearly you do not know your friends very well. I mean, he is not the one that did it, but why Mike is a piece of shit. I absolutely wouldn't be shocked if he did something horrible. Well, they go. I I do like the fact that Justin's like, Oh, do you know where this location is? And she's like, yeah, it's Fremont street. And again, they go to this place and it's clearly not Fremont street, which if you're in Vegas, you know, Fremont street, this is again, downtown desolate Detroit. They go into this hotel room, and I love there's a close-up of a sign that says hostel. Just to, just to hit home that this is a, hey, remember, this is a hostel movie. <laughs> they go into room number nine while Justin waits in the car because his leg is hurting. In the room, they do find, they find Mike's phone. They find their his, his, his clothes and everything, so it does look like they've been there. But all of a sudden, these guys come out of the closet and spray them all in the face with uh, gas. It's quick. It like comes out of nowhere. Oh, it's it, yeah. It's so quick. It actually surprised. It just like surprised me. I'm like, okay. Out outside, Justin sees these people loading 
the bodies into a van so he gets out when Travis approaches him. Tells him that Mike sent for him because Mike's down at a bar and he's too drunk to come and get Justin. So he wants Travis to get Justin and take him back to, to the bar. And this, again, is when we we see how much of a smart individual Justin is because he's like, he doesn't say, OK, let's go. What he says is, oh, let me call him to make sure. And as he picks up the phone to call. Justin's like, or Travis is like, oh, and one more thing. He takes out Mace and sprays poor Justin in the face with it. I do love that Justin is able to swing his crutch and bash fucking Travis across the head and knock him to the ground. Yeah. I do like that he gets his swing in. Yeah, because Travis, let's take a moment to talk about Travis real quick. Because one thing that needs to be very much acknowledged at this point is not only is Travis the initial antagonist but he's very much becoming the focal antagonist over the course of this film up to this point there's a lot of things about travis that doesn't work for me but one of them is truthfully just how he looks he has he looks like a cuter paul dano he's like and he's not handsome he's just paul dano has a very hard face to look at and this kid is just not as uncomfortable um so thus he's not looking as crazy he just has bad hair um, and he just like kind of looks like an average everyday, like maybe 20 something. And maybe if you had the right actor in this role, that could be used to develop and evolve that character. But in this case, it just feels like an off casting because for this guy to be like the main antagonist force in this film becomes very, very forced and very, um, not impactful, uh, ineffective. There are a lot of scenes where he's supposed to be coming off as intimidating or threatening and it just doesn't really work one thing that again eli roth i got to give him credit credit eli roth is the king of casting day players bit players smaller roles and supporting roles with actors who really pop off the screen or maybe have something about them that makes them jump out to you and uh, leave, like, leave an impression with you. And this cast is, while many of them are attractive, a lot of them don't stand out as being anything special or unique, especially when we're talking about the villains, the antagonists. All of the villains, all of the antagonists in the first two Hostile movies are memorable. In this movie, I can't really tell any of them apart from each other. And when it comes to some of the bigger characters, such as Travis, he just is bland to me. He looks like someone who I would maybe have seen in like in, in a like in like a college setting or something. He looks like he'd be playing a college student. Well, he looks like he actually looks like someone that dropped out of college. You know, I mean, yeah, there's just nothing very distinct or memorable about his look. Um, and you know, he's supposed to be you know, sinister because he is such a innocent, you know, he's like the last person that you would expect to be the mastermind behind getting all of these victims for these, for this club. But I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I agree with you. There is something just not quite fleshed out correctly with the character and the actor's performance. I just could never put my finger on what it was, but I just wasn't really feeling him as a strong presence in the film, which he really should be He kind of just, he's on screen. He just kind of fades to the background. Like I feel like everyone else around him 
is always the gets gets the, gets my focus, and it shouldn't be that yeah. way. Particularly in some of the key scenes later, he just kind of drown. He gets drowned out by the other performers. So everyone wakes up in these cages. the The guards come in and take poor Justin. Ugh. They drag him out. Uh, there's chaos. At this moment, what we I guess is a, the twist is revealed. Because they come to get Carter and he's like, you fucking, he does make a racial slur at the, at the guys. And he's like, you don't know who you're fucking with. And the guys are like, you shut the fuck up. Who do you think you are? And he's like, I'm one of you. And he pulls up his sleeve and reveals that he has the exact same tattoo. We forgot to mention this tattoo, Roger. So real quick, well, this, this, it's a lion head, right? No, it's the it's the it's the classic tattoo from the first two movies. Oh, I, it's, it's a it hound dog. A hound. It's a bloodhound. It's a blood. Yeah. Okay, I couldn't tell. I mean, who knows? It looked like a lion's head to me. I'm like, okay, well, they elaborated on the tattoo from, but it's a it's a tattoo that all of these members of this elite hunting group have, and they use it as a a means to to they press it up against uh, the uh, the door security panel to use it to get into access to all the rooms in the building. I mean, could a tattoo really do that? I don't know. Apparently so. But he, we find out, lo and behold, Carter is a member of the elite hunting group because of course he fucking is. Of course. Of course. And Scott is like, what the fuck? Where, who are you? What are you doing, Carter? And he's like, I'm part of the club members only and he walks away and we do get this scene with him and Fleming who I guess is in charge of the Vegas you know <laughs> operation right and there's just this brief awkward discussion about like how mistakes were made on both ends I'm assuming what they mean is like Carter <sighs> Carter set this up is what we find out, but it hasn't gone the way that they expected it to go because, you know, Mike was never supposed to be a victim. Justin was never supposed to be a victim. None of these guys, except we find out Scott were supposed to be victims of this group. So Carter is kind of fucked up by getting everyone else involved in finding out about this location and where all this was going on by, by Mike staying with Kendra. And so convoluted, right? Long story short, Fleming asks him, are you okay with your friends being collateral damage? We have to make up for these mistakes. And Carter's response is, well, yeah, because they were always more his friends than mine. Oh, that fucking piece of shit. And at the same moment, yeah, right. I'm like, you fuck. At the same moment, the TV comes on and we see that Justin is now strapped in a chair. And he is in this chair and all of a sudden smoke comes up from the floor. And this figure in this latex, tight latex outfit, it's obviously a female, wearing what I can only describe as a mask that looks like like the Predator. Like it has like dreadlocks and like this these huge like glass eyes. It's a, it's a complete costume mass. You don't, you don't see who this person is. And I will say that despite again, how lackluster this particular death scene is, this is the killer that is probably the most memorable um, just because of the look. But then again, this look and this costumed killer does not fit the hostile world at all. Oh, at all. I need to pause real quick. Cause there's, Going back two scenes, I haven't had a chance to touch on one thing I really want to state before it because this kill is 
I've got a bunch of notes on it. I want to delve into it, but um, a couple scenes back with the whole thing when Carter is released, there's a moment where, and you said there's a, there's a slur thrown out, but I want to acknowledge that there's a point where they say, suck my dick, you fucking faggot. Um, and again, very much trying to fall into the, the pattern of an Eli Roth. But even in this case, this seems very forced uh, and does not even fit the, the type of insult that I would imagine being thrown out in this scenario. Um, when I heard it, like I can, I've heard that term used before and been like able to shrug it off and be like, eh, okay, it makes sense with the character. Here, it just seems like it's there to be there. And I find it all the more unappealing uh, and offensive. So I do just want to spotlight that choice usage of the term faggot here. Uh, and also, one of the few things that does have me going at this point right now, because I'm not loving the movie, but I'm not hating it. But. I absolutely, at this point, when we come up onto the Justin sequence, I am now signed on till the end of the movie because I absolutely need to witness Carter get his comeuppance. Because now that I know what's going on and his involvement and what comes from it, I have a vendetta against him (laughs) because he is absolutely a shitty individual. Carter is a giant piece of shit. And it leads to poor Justin meeting a grisly, painful demise that he certainly doesn't deserve. Uh, but again, it doesn't seem like it it's, it's fits the hostile world. But what ends up happening is this figure, this, I don't know what it is, this creature in this, this figure in this costume has a crossbow and there's no tension at all, literally walks in with the crossbow, doesn't doesn't taunt him, doesn't do anything, immediately, Roger, immediately starts launching the arrows into poor Justin. Yeah, what we learn is that the individuals watching this are betting on how many arrows it will take to kill him. It ends up taking nine. Um, this, this thing is relentlessly shooting him with these crossbows and he is grunting and, and, and obviously in pain. And we, we do see a whole full body shot of him. And one of the arrows is embedded right in his crotch. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's probably the most effective sequence in the sense of kills overall, at least thus far by far. Um, it's, it's interesting because most of the time they cut away whenever she goes to shoot with the arrow it cuts just to his face reacting at first. So you don't see a lot of penetration up until the finale of the sequence. Then you finally see the reveal of just how many arrows are in him. Uh, Justin dying is, is first of all, killing off the only character I, I really character, uh, character I really care about. So it did feel like a waste because this is a character I wanted to see make it, at least make it further into the film. And he is the first of the group who's now been abducted. He's the first to, to go. Uh, and the kill itself, while it's sexy, because, you know, it's, it's she's a dame in like a leather bodysuit strutting around in this mask. It's kind of sexy in a way, but it's not scary. It's maybe creepy, but it's very clear, Troy, that this is now another kill where I think they were trying to take influence from a more successful sequence in a previous installment. Uh, and clearly trying to capitalize off of the success of that Heather Matarazzo kill uh, to a certain degree. Because if you think of how that sequence was structured, how that was set up, the woman enters, she kind of toys around a little bit, and then proceeds to 
in that case, slash her over and over with a scythe. And this one, she's shooting him over and over with a bow and arrow. So I feel like they're trying to follow that same format, uh, just to nowhere near the level of effect of the la- of the second entry. Yeah, I think what really hits this kill home for me, even though it's very lackluster, is the fact that up until the end, right before he dies, there's a very sad, I think it's very sad, scene where the, the killer in her costume does go over to him and pull the a gag out of his mouth. And instead of like being angry and like sp- saying you fucking bit, you know, I would be like, fuck you. You know, I'd get up spitting at it. what does he do? He's like, it's okay. It's okay. Like up until the time he dies, he is not like an angry person at all. He's actually telling he's, it's actually like, he's telling this person, I understand you're, you know, why you, you, you feel you have to do this. It's okay. And she responds by putting the crossbow against his chin and shooting an arrow up through his chin and it comes up the top of his head. And I got to say, I, I got, I was a little affected because I, this character is just pre- presented as being so sweet up until the moment where he does, like I said, he's not angry. He doesn't cuss at her. He doesn't spit at her. He's trying to be, show some semblance of sympathy almost for this character. I think the minds behind this film would have been wise to have have come up with an alternate scenario in which he survived. Because I do think, after watching this, I think a lot of the viewers are going to feel the same way as you. Uh, because he does represent like the only kind of element of positivity within this group, of good, of kindness, of overall caring within the group and to kill him off really, especially with so many people still left, leaves you feeling at that point, kind of like, okay, let's get it over with, you know? Well, back in the cages, Victor is vowing to get revenge. Um, And we learn that it's showtime. What happens is, Scott is is in the cage and he's telling Victor that, hey, you know, Victor is just whining about Anka. You know, he's like, I can't believe they took my girl. I haven't seen her since. I wonder what happened to her. And Scott's like, I'm supposed to be getting married next week. And Victor's like, well, good thing you didn't get married last week. And Scott's like, well, why? And he's like, because she'd be a widow now. And on cue, the guard comes in and pulls Scott out of the cage. They take him, put him in a tuxedo. Which I think was a, what's the point? What's the point? Like, I didn't get this. Why is he in a tuxedo? But he is. I guess it's because it's his wedding, right? This is supposed to be symbolizing his wedding. And I also and... think that one thing that to take away from the other films is uh, if each individual who is paying to have this opportunity to kill somebody also got to play into like the kind of weaponry, the costumes they wanted them in, so forth and so on. So I think what we find out, it's very specific that he's put in a tuxedo. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, because he's in a tuxedo. He gets tied to a chair. And lo and behold, who comes in the room? It's fucking. It is. What's his name again? Carter. Carter. <laughs> Sorry, he's not very memorable, so I had a hard time remembering his name. <laughs> it's Carter, and this is when it's really revealed that this was set up by him. This was his goal all along. He's been a member of this elite hunting club for a while. He has a block of of fancy knives that he says 
these are the same knives that Amy put on her gift red- wedding registry for you guys. And he pulls one out. And he's like, and I got to say, these are some really great knives. You see this one? See, I used a knife exactly like this to skin my last victim in that. And I can't remember what country he says. He's like, it took six hours. And Scott's like, you sick motherfucker. But what we find out is that Carter is planning on killing Scott because a, he does not get any uh, adrenaline anymore from killing. And he feels like if he kills somebody that he has a connection to or who matters quote unquote to him, that it'll give him that rush that he's been, that's been lacking. Secondly, though, the main reason he wants to kill Scott is that he, he wants Amy and we find out he was the one that told Amy about Scott cheating in hopes that she would leave him and that they could get together, but it didn't happen. So now his plan is to kill Scott. When Amy finds out, he'll be able to console her and it'll lead to them getting together, having sex and living happily ever after. Okay. First off, that set of knives looks like he bought it at Family Dollar. Okay. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm sorry. Those knives, that ain't nothing to write home about. Gustavo has a very nice set of knifeware down in the kitchen below. And I've seen fine knives. I've seen quality knives. These are some shitty ass knives. So I don't know what, what he's talking about. What bullshit he's blowing up uh, Scott's ass about the quality of those knives. Because they, they look cheap. I'm sorry. Secondly, I got to give Gustavo some credit here. We were watching the movie, and with the literally the very first scene that he saw Carter come on come on camera, uh, he said, "I bet you that guy's the villain." Not only that, I bet you he's in love with the fiance. <laughs> he called the whole thing, and it's it's pretty obvious. It is, you know what? And here's the thing: is it is, it is kind of obvious because flashing going back to that original the opening scene where Carter comes to pick. Uh, Scott up and he's kissing Amy Carter's like, come on, come on, Amy, quit kissing him. You, you're going to be able to have him, um, for the rest of your life. And there is this moment where Carter's like, and what, what happened to us? What about us? And she's like, you had your chance back in, uh, back in freshman year. He's like, yeah, whatever happened to that? And Scott makes the comment that you, oh, well, you were just a man whore. So there is right away in that opening scene, it is established that him and uh, Amy were an item at one time. Uh, So it sort of doesn't come out of left field. Plus, Carter just looks like a fucking douchebag. So it's not unexpected. He looks very much just like the people we've seen prior who have fallen into the same role in the in the movies before this. He does look like perfect cookie cutter mold of what I would expect. So yeah, the moment you see him, you definitely would suspect this of him. But the powers that be have a little trick up their own sleeves that they have not told Carter about. As Carter gets his chainsaw, starts it up to finish Scott off. And there is a pretty, you know, intense back and forth between Carter and Scott. Scott's yelling at him about how big of a piece of shit he is. How could you do this to your friends? And Carter makes the comment, when it comes to pussy, I have no friends. I'm like, oh, okay. Ain't it the truth, Troy? (laughs) Maybe for Carter. (laughs) I'll tell you one thing that doesn't get me that cuckoo banana. (laughs) No. Uh, Makes me run, but it doesn't. Uh, Anyway. Uh, So 
the powers that be actually request that Scott be released. They have their own little trick. So they release, Scott gets released so that they can actually fight each other. And the audience now we find out has been instructed that they're not betting on like how Carter's going to kill Scott or anything like that. They're betting on who's going to win. It's a fight to the death. Uh, At one point in this, Scott literally screams, you want a fucking show? I'll give you a fucking show. Okay. Things I would not scream in a fight to the death. This scene. Okay. This should, this is, this should be right. Roger, this should be the pinnacle scene in the film. These two fighting. This is handled so clumsily and so quickly that there is literally no tension. There's no moment where you think one's going to get the best of the other. Like you traditionally see in these types of, of scenes of, of two people fighting in the death. No, that does not happen. This scene probably lasts 20 seconds. Um, it ends with, I mean, they, they get a few punches in and then it ends with Scott, like knocking, uh, Carter on the floor and then making that what you just said, looking at the audience, you want to show. And he starts stabbing Carter and then proceeds to cut the tattoo off of his arm and use it to exit the room. This whole scene probably lasts from the moment they start from the moment Scott gets released so that they could fight probably 30 seconds at the most. It is so quick. Well, and to make things even worse, that goddamn smoke machine starts going off. So, like, the viewers can't even really see what's going on. If I was watching, if I was there to watch a murder to the de- or a fight to the death, I would feel like I wasn't getting my money's worth because the smoke is everywhere, which thus allows Scott to get out without anybody seeing it right off, right off the bat, you know? So he's able to use the tattoo to scan his way out of the door and, and make a run for it, uh, which is actually rather smart. Uh, he does arm himself with a um, a mace and chain as well, so he's armed and on the run. Yeah, I like that. That's just a, a ra- that's the most random weapon to have laying around. Oh my uh, god! Victor back in his cage has is is realizes that he has had enough of this bullshit, and he's gonna get the fuck out of there. So he antagonizes one of the guards to come to use the cattle prod on him, but when the guard sticks the cattle prod through the cage, he grabs it. And is able to get it from him and shove it into his mouth. And he's like, you die, your turn to die, your turn to die. As this cattle prod is electrocuting the guy's mouth, the guard's mouth, he dies. Victor gets the keys, unlocks the cage and escapes. And this to me is really comical. I, I, I chuckled. Um, because there's just this whole scene is comical. Yeah. He's like, he's running down the hallway. Like, Fuck you, you it's like shooting at random people and it's almost like it's almost like a cartoon. Well, even when he's so when he gets the like gets the best of the guy with the cattle prod, like he turns it on the guy and starts like cattle prodding him to the mouth, and you get this like horrible digital electricity like pulsing into the guy's mouth, which that alone is comedic. And while that's happening, Victor is like screaming, "Oh, I'm so happy, you motherfucker, motherfucker!" Oh, and it's like, it sounds like so like ADR in in over everything. It sounds very awkward, and he keeps like screaming and yelling and shouting things. It just I don't understand what journey this guy is on at this point. And there's also a scene of this security guard sitting at his desk, and he's oblivious. It's like he's playing a video game. 
and he's oblivious to anything that's going on. And I'm like, I don't buy that. The, the people that run this are just going to let their security guards sit and play a fucking video game. We're talking about a, a, a operation that murders people. Are you not regularly? Do you not have more higher standards for your security guard? I mean, it's almost like they're pre- they're presenting him as he's like a security guard at a, like a hospital or some like random, yeah. you know, low stakes place. But all I'll say is this really this sure ain't no hostile Slovakia. No, you they have definitely they have completely different work ethics in Slovakia. The people working at the hostel in Slovakia, they have one mission. It's to make sure this whole thing runs smoothly. Here in the States, these guys, they're fucking up left and right. They're sloppy, (laughs) sloppy babies. Sloppy babies making bad choices, and that's why things go the way they do at Hostel Las Vegas. (laughs) Victor (laughs) runs past this guy, and he's like, fuck you! It's like, shoots at him. (laughs) And the guy just is like, he misses him, so the guy just starts chasing him. Yeah. And this whole thing that happens with Victor is, is it, it it makes Victor's purpose seem very, like, confusing to me. Because what basically happens is, it's not like Victor and Scott ever, like, meet up and like work together they kind of they go on their own like separate journeys and victor like just to be transparent and get it over with victor is pretty quickly killed in in the middle of a a showdown with this one security guard he does manage to get an axe into the security guard's chest but the guard just shoots him in the middle of, of dying and they both die um, and the only real thing that Victor does is to push the story along as he knocks the power out. He does use his axe to knock the power out. So at least now, like, everything starts to shut down. But it feels very much like a plot device and not not like a character, like an actual decision to benefit a character. It's such a waste of his character, too. Like, why, exactly. why have this character survive throughout the entire film? Again, like you said, it's just a plot point. And there's another character that conveniently we haven't mentioned because she's basically been forgot about until now, but we'll get to her too. talk about another fucking waste of a character, but after, okay. So yes, Victor's dead. He shot the security guard or he axes the security guard in the chest. The security guard shoots him in the chest. They both die. They die staring at each other. Scott in the meantime has found the room where they must keep all of the clothes and, and, and phones and personal belongings to the victims that belong to the victims because he find he got, he finds a huge pile of cell phones and he starts using them and he gets one of them to finally connect to 911 and he's like hey they're killing me they've killed my friends you got to find me and she's like just stay on the phone so we can get your location and in the meantime uh Travis comes in the room and he finds the phone on the floor now Scott is nowhere to be seen and he does hear the operator on the a phone being like, hey, we got your location. The police are on their way. So he destroy that. Yes, phone. but well, it doesn't matter. He has no choice now but to call Fleming and tell him, hey, uh, guess what? Scott got a hold of the cops. They've been called. What should we do? And Fleming tells him, kill all the prisoners. We can't leave any witnesses. And he proceeds to detonate. <laughs> Is that an explosion of an explosive device to blow up the building in five minutes. I'm like, this is something out of like a diehard movie or something. It is. It is. It is. It is so not the direction I would ever expect one of these films to take. And it definitely isn't like for the betterment. It's such a strange choice. Um, And no, it's like, I'm just so confused. So Travis like shows up and he sees the phone like laying there. It's turned on. The operator is still talking. And like, at least I would try to be proactive and I don't know, step on the phone, shoot it. Burn you know it. what would even be even smarter 
is to pick up the phone and be like, oh, hey, 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 don't, don't, my, that was my friend. He's drunk. He was just, please just playing a prank. We're all good. Don't come. Yeah. I mean, at least yeah. try not, I mean, try to get him to not come. But to leave it laying there and on as the operator is just like talking, like I'm like this is not the the right choice, but whatever. Um, so Travis is hunting for Scott, and Scott manages to grab a gun from one of the fallen guards, and it brings him back to the prisoner area where he finds Kendra. Okay, that's the case. She's still here. We we haven't forgot about her. She's just laying in. A, she's just she's laying, just laying in a cage yeah. half the movie. She's. And so you're like, oh, good, they found her. Like, luckily, like, we at least are going to get some time with this character. No. no. We're going to see something happen. <laughs> he he frees her, and then, like, they, they turn and start running. And as soon as they, like, turn a corner, Travis shows up and fucking shoots Kendra in the back and apparently kills her. Yeah. He kills her. Like, he shoots her in the back. And, well, she's, like, we see her, like, drop to the ground. But she's still, like, moving around and no, stuff as they run he, away. No, he walks He walks by her again and shoots her in the back again and then kicks her in the face. Oh, so that's what happened. Yeah. He just shot. It's, it's very dark. There's a few scenes in this that are actually quite dark and are very hard to see. Yeah, he, There's a scene earlier that was in one of the cages that, like, I couldn't even see what the fuck was going on. Yeah, he no, he walks by her, shoots her again, and then kicks her in the face. But but what what a waste of a character, like yeah, she absolutely she, you know that was such a bullshit like move to, for this character. Like she couldn't even have gotten you couldn't have let this character get more than five feet out of her cage before you kill her. Like I really thought, okay, what it's what's going to happen is her and Scott are going to survive, and there's going to be like a nice little maybe love story or something. Nope, she's shot. She's dead. Um, well, at least like give the, let the girl get a gun. Let her at least have a moment. Let the female protagonist have a single moment of redemption or something before she dies. But it does play into your whole thing about Eli, Eli Roth writing, you know, female characters that are basically throwaways. Because this Kendra character and the Nikki character, honestly, very much throwaway characters. Neither one of them had any real, uh, you know purpose i mean they're not the villains you know in the first film the beautiful girls that lure the guys away were the villains these these girls aren't i mean it's just an odd odd choice i thought scott gets into the crematorium room and we do get a moment where he finds the bodies of justin and mike uh you know has his moment seeing his two friends brutally murdered in the meantime, Fleming, the the, the mastermind, the, the 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 guy in charge of the Vegas hostel, gets in his SUV and is going to drive away. When all of a sudden, Carter pops out of the back of the SUV and stabs the fuck out of him, throws him out of the SUV, and gets is going to drive away, drive to safety. Um, however, because it is a hostel that is serving as a murder factory. There are some, apparently, some precautions put into place for people to not leave so uh, easily because there's that row of spikes that are on the ground so that if you run over them, you're going to pop your tires and not be able to go. Carter basically dra- drags Fleming's body over to the spikes, puts it puts it on the spike so that he can literally drive over drive over the body and use it as a shield from the spikes. I love this. I do think this is quite a wise uh, move. I wish we'd actually get to see the moment. No, it cuts away. But it, it does. As many times within this film, it cuts away yet again. So, And now we get an, a, a another really rushed fight scene, which should have been another pinnacle moment between two 
characters, the antagonist and the protagonist, but it, it, it's, it just limps long. It just limps through very quickly. Travis finds Scott in the crematorium. They fight for about five seconds before, uh, Scott pushes Travis over a gurney and then is able to grab his arm and hack it off with a meat cleaver. This is pretty violent. It's probably the most violent moment in the movie, all things considered. It is. It is. And it actually looks pretty realistic, I would say. Uh, he cuts the arm off and Travis is screaming, holding his bloody stump as it's squirting blood. And uh, Scott just tosses the arm into the fire <laughs> and then proceeds to, in some sort of, you know, justice for Justin, beats Travis to death with Justin's crutch. I love it. It does. I mean, like, yes, if anything, let's give Justin one final, like, moment of honor. Uh, and what better way than to use the one thing that people used to, like, judge him for and make fun of him for to beat the fuck out of the guy that made sure he died? Carter's driving driving away when he sees all of a sudden Scott come running out of the building. And instead of just driving away and, like, leaving it be, he backs up, gets out, runs back to the building, shuts the gate just as Scott gets to the gate, locks it with a chain and padlock, and then proceeds just to run away. Get back in the car and drive away as and leave Scott there screaming at him, you motherfucker, let me out. And the building explodes with Scott trapped there. This is some of the worst digital Ugh, blood. It's awful. I've ever seen in my life. It's so bad. It really like if this is going to be like the final conclusion and the whole buildup isn't bad. Like you have this whole moment of Scott running in that goddamn white suit. It does look like a cheap James Bond ripoff because uh, he's like running after the SUV and then Carter like uh, chains the uh, the gate shut so Scott can't get out and he's driving away in the middle of the desert as you watch this big explosion. It definitely feels more along the lines of like you said a diehard than than any form of a horror movie. Um, but you do see Scott basically get engulfed in the flame. It's it's rather sad because his character's been a little bit of a, a dick over the course of the film, but he's not awful. Uh, and he certainly, I think, earned his uh, his survival, you know? So you do want to see him at least make it. Well, yeah. Well, we. It, you, I'm glad you said that, Roger, because we do see him getting engulfed in flames, right? Totally engulfed yeah. in flames, which then makes this final scene not make much sense. In so many ways. Yeah. So we cut to Carter consoling Amy as they're looking at Scott's urn with his ashes in it. And his plan, what he told Scott was going to happen, is it is going exactly as he said it was going to. Because Amy's crying and he's hugging her and she looks him in the eyes with her puppy dog brown eyes and she's like, Carter, I don't want to be alone tonight. And he's like, oh, Amy, you don't have to be. I'm not going anywhere. And she's like, oh, I'm so grateful for you. Let's go have a drink. So she takes him into the dining room. He's sitting at the table. Um, he, you know, is just like beaming because this plan is going so well. She gets a bottle of champagne and is going to open it with her champagne corkscrew. And she looks down at him. She's like, you know what? There's just one thing I forgot to tell you. And he's like, yeah, what's that? And he's like, he's still alive. And she shoves the corkscrew through his hand, pins him to the table. When we see Scott come up behind him, who conveniently has a, just a very, I mean, it's, 
a slight burn on the side of his head. Some of his hair is missing, and we see a burn. I mean, I would say it's a somewhat of a significant burn. However, it's certainly not up to par with what I would anticipate after being, you know, consumed in a massive explosion. I would expect his entire body was a bloody pulp. Oh yeah, because um, we saw the flames. We saw the flames like really, literally go over him. But whatever, we'll go with it. Scott pulls him into the basement, ties him to a chair. Um, and the film ends with him and Amy or Amy looking on as Scott takes this garden triller, turns it on and shoves it into Carter's face. And it cuts away. And it cuts away. We just see some. And their suburban neighbors would absolutely hear his screams of death. Oh, he was screaming his bloody fucking head off. And, but yeah, we don't see it. And the film ends. That's, that's the end of it. I'm left with some questions. Let me throw them out there. First of all, first question, how did Scott survive? We've already established that is a question we have. Second question, how did he get back from Las Vegas? <laughs> like, how did this fucker, who is presumed to be dead, did he did he hike with those burns? How did he how did he feasibly make it out of the desert and across state lines? back to his home. If already people have uh, have an urn that they suspect is his ashes, this has obviously been a period of time. <laughs> so that's really, I'm very confused how Scott managed to make it back so discreetly without anybody knowing, aside from his lovely wife, Amy. Um, it, it is, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but I will say like, as far as like satisfying endings go, you know what? One thing I wanted, like I said earlier, is to see Carter get his comeuppance. And I just got it, and I'll take it. And sure, I maybe didn't see as much gore as I hoped. Sure, maybe it's a little implausible. But they still gave me what I wanted. So in that sense, this movie actually kind of achieved what it was you know, setting out to do. It ended on more of a positive note than I anticipated. Just the overall process of getting to the conclusion were at times uh, strenuous for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think the ending, I, I kind of, you know, I remember the first time I saw this, I kind of predicted the ending, you know, when I saw, um, you know, Amy and, and Carter standing in front of the urn. I was like, oh, okay, she knows and she's going to kill him or Scott's still alive. But it does beg a lot of questions. How did he survive? How did he get back? Um, why are they, you know, going this particular route? Don't they really think they're going to not get caught killing him? I mean, whatever, but it is what it is. It's a hostile film. It's hostile three Las Vegas. And it is unfortunately, or fortunately, however you want to look at it, the last film in the franchise. So it was a trilogy and I've never heard any talk of them ever doing another one or revamping the series. So I think this is it. Yeah. Let's leave it that way. Yeah. I would say, I mean, there's not much more you can do with it unless you're going to like, you know, do a, and I hate to bring this up because I know the first one is, but unless you were going to do a remake of the original one and try to, you know, reimagine it, I can't see, there's no point in doing another sequel. They tried to do something different with Hostile 3 and, you know, it was very much negatively received. Um, yeah, this is honestly a film I don't feel like I uh, will never, I'm not saying because I hated it, I'm just so indifferent i don't think i'll ever need to seek it out again if it's on and playing maybe i'll watch it but like i mean yeah i, I mean it, it, for what it is it's you know whatever you sit back and watch i don't i mean i know you said you were bored at some points i don't think i was ever bored but like it's just such a just an extreme turn from the other two films tone wise atmosphere wise yeah so it's really hard to connect it to the, you know, 
to the hostile franchise if you're a fan of the the first two films. So like I said, I would I almost feels like it should have been its own thing. I agree on that. And you know, I think I think when we say the when I say bored, it's more along the lines of I guess the last two films, especially the second film for me, made me feel a lot of things. And this film didn't even come close. You know what? You know, okay, so you know the tone that this film gives me. Uh, it gives me more of a purge tone than a hostile tone. Yeah, but even the pur- I, I really like some some of the purge films, and I enjoyed those far more than I than I did this. Experience. I'm I'm am simply talking about like the tone, the feel of the film. Uh, I think the purge films are, are especially the ones that come after the first purge are definitely way more like action based. And there are scenes, you know, of these people that are partaking in the purge, making it sort of this um, game. Yeah. Yeah, and that's I feel fair. like that, that tone matches hostile three much more than it does. Hostile three matches the tone of the first two films. Yeah. So if you're looking at it from that perspective and just watching it, and for a, for a, a slasher film made in 2011, which let's be honest, you know, that the 2010s weren't a necessarily great decade for slasher films until we got to the later part of, of the, you know, 2010s with, with yeah. uh, Halloween 2018. And then, you know, so I, I look at it and I'm like, okay, it's not terrible for, for that, but it certainly doesn't hold a candle to the first two films. Right. Agreed. Not even close. I mean, that's Hostel Three. We we would never have covered it if it wasn't for us meeting in Las Vegas. So yeah. we have that to. Think. I've been waking up in Vegas, but thanks to Hostel Three, now I'm I'm slowly drifting away to we're, sleep in Vegas. <laughs> we're yeah we're 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 putting our uh, Vegas memories behind us with Hostel Three, and, and and until next time, hopefully we'll be able to meet up in Vegas next time, and there'll be some more Vegas themed horror films to come. Oh, I can only I pray. Can't think of any give me, give me a slasher film with a killer dressed as Elvis. Oh, oh, let's write that. Okay. I'm on um, it. But yeah, guys, that's hostile three. Um, so yeah, it, reminder, you know, we have a Patreon. We'll be dropping some more stuff on our Patreon this week for April. We'll have a full length Patreon episode and then our talking bodies episode that'll drop this week. So check it out. Um, and patreon.com slash dark night of the podcast we have we have over 20 bonus episodes guys so if you have listened to all of our episodes on our main feed and you're just dying for more you can access them for as little as two dollars a month and that helps improve the show so consider it it's it's a lot of fun we put a lot of work into the episodes so check them out if you don't want to do that you can support us by giving us a five star rating and or review on apple podcasts that that helps out the show tremendously as well so roger you want to leave our lovely listeners that we adore and cannot thank enough for tuning in each week with what our film for next week is going to be oh my god i this okay listen so this hostile three episode i was kind of like let's get through it you know i'm indifferent this next one coming Buckle the fuck up. Gays, get get ready. Sit down, because this is going to be a big one, both because of the title and because of the guest. First of all, we're having a lovely guest, and it's one of the minds behind the phenomenal 
Scream Queen documentary uh, about Mark Patton and his journey with a Nightmare on Elm Street 2, and it was a fabulous documentary. I had the joy of seeing it at the Cleveland Independent Film Festival uh, a couple years ago when it was coming out, um, and got to see these gentlemen present the title, um, and one of them will be joining us for this next review, which is phenomenal. So we have uh, Roman Shimenti coming onto the show. He's one of the minds behind Scream Queen. Uh, phenomenal talent. Very excited to have him. He's going to be a great guest, especially considering the title that we are covering. It's a little bit like out of nowhere, but you know what? We're going to do it because it's still a thriller. Uh, it's an explo- It's an exploitation thriller, which is right up Troy and Mai's alley. Uh, we're covering 1984's Angel. <laughs> yes, the film about the 14-year-old prostitute slash uh, the, sex, the sex worker who seeks out vengeance. Um I'm ready for it. I mean, I'm so fucking pumped for this. This is going to be so fun. I think we're going to have a great time. I think he's going to bring a lot to the table, too, because this is one of his favorite films. And he has a knowledge on this title that I envy. So, I mean, buckle the fuck up. We're going full speed ahead. No, I can't wait. Donna Wilkes as a 14-year-old hooker and Susan Tyrell as an old drunken hooker. I cannot wait. Um, <laughs> Molly yeah. Angel Stewart is the topic of the next episode of Dark Knight of the uh, Podcast. I cannot wait. I cannot wait. And he's a great guy. Yeah, he's going to be great. He is. He's a wonderful talent. He, I know he worked uh, as editor, I believe, on um, Death Drop Gorgeous as well. And we've had all of those sexy, hunky, talented lovely men on our show and if yes. you've not watched death drop gorgeous you need to drop everything you do and, and watch it because it is a blast from yes. start to finish yes uh shutter but yeah and angel is on shutter so when you're done with angel just scroll over to shutter to death drop gorgeous and give that a watch because we love it we love the guys behind it they're fabulous uh and we cannot wait for this episode i'm excited so we have a lot to we have a lot coming up with between our patreon and angel yeah. and uh, our month of June, folks, we want to throw this out here and then we're, we'll let you go. Month of June, Roger, I think we've decided is going to be our fan pick month, right? Yes. So we need you and we're going to make a social media post about this, but we want to start getting your suggestions for films that you want to see us cover. So shoot us uh, a message on Instagram, on Facebook, email darknightofthepodcast at gmail.com. Tell us a title that you would love to see us cover. We're going to pick four for the month of June. We'll, you know, we'll randomly put them in a randomizer and select the four that we choose. And we will give you a shout out on the show for suggesting the title. So we think it's a good way for us to see some films that we, we might not have seen before and to, and to cover films that you guys want us to cover instead of, you know, picking Hostel 3. <laughs> Which probably nobody would want us to cover, but we did anyway. We so did it for you know, Vegas, all for the sake of Vegas. And you know what? We, we're leaving Vegas. We're moving on to new territory. We're talking about hookers. <laughs> I can 14 year old hookers at that. Okay, guys. So that is it. We hope you enjoyed it. Like I said, give us some love on Apple podcast reviews. Check out our Patreon and get ready for Angel. Until then, you're all of our angels. You are. We love you. <laughs> and we're and we will pray to you tonight. Have a lovely evening. Good night. Good night.